It's Revelation 1, starting at verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. G'day, everyone. Uh, Really good to be with you this morning. My name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Paraka. Uh, Welcome along, whether this is your first time or 400th time. Actually, I don't think we've been going that long as a church, but never mind. I really want to just, before I start, to say a couple of quick things. Um, one is, yeah, do get behind Anya and what she's doing. It's excellent work that's happening up at ES. Uh, uh, my family support, support Anya and what's going on up there. Um, it's great to get behind that. Also want to say, 
combined Sunday. Now, I know Nate already talked about this, but it's two weeks from now, 30th of July. Church that morning is not here. Church that morning is up at Padere at Golden Grove. We're going to meet with another bunch of churches. It's excellent. And it's so good to, to, to it's even just a visual reminder that we're not in this alone. It's not just our church that are, that, that, that are living for Jesus in this area. It's lots of other people as well. So uh, plan to be there. Great, a great uh, morning it will be. I want to start by telling you about a story about a phone call I once got, though. This was um, <clears throat> when I was living in Sydney. Uh, I, I was um, volunteering about a day a week at, a, at our particular church, um, and this was around Christmas time, right? So I'm in the office of the church there, uh, and got a phone call that came in. Now it's a bigger church. There was a receptionist that worked, and she picks up the phone, and apparently all the pastors of, of the church are out. So eventually she comes and she passes the phone to me, and she says, you take this call. I'm like, oh, goodness, that's what's going on here? This would be interesting, right? Um, so I take the phone, and I start talking, and there, there's a woman on the line. I can't remember her name. <clears throat> But she tells me she's a Christian, she's not part of our church, but recently she'd been to the shopping centre that was near our church. Now at this shopping centre there's a David Jones, and, and, and every year David Jones had a nativity scene set up in one of their big shop windows. You know, the baby Jesus and Mary and all, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this year though, the, the woman who I'm talking to on the phone, she'd walked by David Jones and there was no nativity scene. They decided to ditch it. And this woman, she found it disturbing. What have they done with it? Why isn't it here? Where is it gone? Now, I must confess to you, honestly, my first instinct was to think, is that really the biggest concern you've got in life at the moment, that DJs haven't put up the nativity scene? But I held my tongue, and, and as she kept talking, I realized actually this was part, for her, of a much bigger concern. Her concern was this. She felt like Christianity was under threat. She felt like her beliefs were being pushed out of society and no longer viewed as acceptable. And so she was wondering, what should we do about this? Now, can I be honest with you again? I, I don't remember what I told her that day. I remember her question more than anything. If Christianity is under attack, what should we do? What do we do about that? Well, here, here at church, we're about to start a, a new series. We've called it Dear Church. We're looking at the first few chapters of Revelation, and particularly, there, there's seven letters in this part of the Bible to seven different ancient churches. But today, that comes in chapter 2 and 3. Today, we're going to get into chapter 1. And by the end of today, I want to have a go at answering that question. If Christianity comes under attack, what do we do about it? But firstly, let's just take a few moments to get ourselves into Revelation. And this is a part of the Bible that has caused some controversy over the years. Uh, for some of us, we feel like it's such a hard book, we don't want anything to do with it. Others of us love it. We love getting in there and figuring out, what does this mean? What does that mean? And, 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 and probably we spend a little bit too much time there at the expense of the rest of the Bible. As you can tell, neither of these is really a good approach. We, we do need to read it. It's part of our Bible. But at the same time, we don't need to let it dominate over everything else in the Bible. And as I said, in this series, we're only going to cover the first three chapters. But I do want us to come back to Revelation at some point in the next couple of years and keep working through it. But one of the reasons we can find it so strange today is this. It's actually not like any other kind of book that we have or that we read today. It's not like many other books in the Bible even. Because it's not a letter. It's not a a biography or a history book. It's not like the Psalms with all of the songs. 
It's written in a style called apocalyptic. That just means it's, 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 it's kind of have it's lots of word pictures and lots of symbolism. It's about big world-changing events. And we read some books today that have some of these kind of things in them, but, but still they're different to apocalyptic writing, what we find in Revelation. And because of all this, it means we need to figure out how do you interpret, how do you understand Revelation. We need some keys that help us here. I want to give you the first really big key to understanding Revelation. Here it is. Key number one. Revelation is all about the gospel news that you already know. It's not something new and different. It's all about Jesus and the victory that Jesus has won by dying on the cross and rising to new life. That's what Revelation's all about. It's about Jesus' victory. And if you know that, actually, it helps you so much as you dig through some of the details. But also notice what Revelation says about itself. Chapter 1, verse 1, what did it say there? The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. That is, revelation is God's word to us. And... There's great blessing in reading it and hearing it. So chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it. I mean, this is an encouragement for us, friends, isn't it? Don't be afraid of the revelation here. It's unusual, and yes, you might need a little bit of hard work to understand what it's saying, but it's God's word for us. There's blessing in hearing it in understanding it. So, let's get into Revelation then. Uh, Revelation was written by John. You see that in chapter 1, verse 4. John is the apostle. He followed Jesus around all in his lifetime. And probably now it's, it's, it's about the year 90 or 95 AD, somewhere in there. So we're talking maybe 60 or so years after Jesus has died and risen again. And in verse 4, we see that John is writing to seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, when you hear that, you probably think, you know, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, but no, 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 no. Um, this, is, this is an ancient Roman province called Asia. It's where modern-day Turkey is. And in, in verse 11, we see these seven churches are named. It's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, and so on and so on. In fact, if I put up a map there, yeah, there it is. You can see where they are in modern-day Turkey. Did you notice, John is writing this, John describes himself in these seven churches in, in, in verse 9. Take a look at what, how John describes them. Verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. <clears throat> and John is saying he, he is... He's tight with these churches. Like he calls himself their brother, their companion. They, they, they share three really key things together, he says. They, they share suffering. They share the kingdom. And so they share patient endurance together. I just want to pick up on one of those things now, suffering. Uh, the people that John is writing to here, the people who first read Revelation, they were Christians who were suffering. The, the Roman emperor back then was Domitian. And under his rule, it seems like Christians did face some uh, official persecution. 
In fact, we look at John himself. He had been exiled. What did verse 9 say? That he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If I bring that map up again, you can just see uh, Patmos there. Uh, it's a, just a little kind of basically rocky island about 50 kilometers off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he's sent there because he has spoken about Jesus. That is, at this time, Christians are being persecuted. But in fact, this wasn't anything new. Since Christianity began, there, there had always been persecution. Uh, there was often hostility from the more established Jewish communities. There was a tension between the Christians and general society because the Christians, <clears throat> pardon me, wouldn't join in their worship of the Roman gods or the Roman emperor. In fact, about 30 years before John writes, um, that there was a different emperor. His name was Nero. You might have heard of him. And for a time, Nero was, was going to, he, he would severely persecute the Christians. And many of the people who are hearing Revelation for the first time would remember back to those days when Nero was in charge. Right, so Revelation here, it was written to Christians who suffered for their faith. For them, this is a lived reality. It might not always be intense suffering, like turned up to 11, but this is a fact of life for them. So imagine, actually, for a moment then, imagine being in their shoes. How would you feel? What's life like for you? You probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe you feel like a, a nobody. You're at the lowest rungs of society here. Maybe you feel neglected, defeated. You're part of these people who are, who are facing persecution from others. Which is why it's so fascinating. Look at how John describes these Christians. What does he say about them? Not that they're suffering. and, 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 and He says, no, no, no. Verse 4. They are those who've received grace and peace from God. Verse 5, they are those who are loved by Jesus. Also, verse 5, they are those who've been freed, freed from sin by Jesus' blood. Verse 6, they, they, these suffering Christians, John says, no, no, you guys are a, a kingdom of priests. You're people now who are come together to serve God together. Let me just pause for a moment there. No doubt there are differences between the, the, the people back then and us today, right? There are. But this stuff hasn't changed. These things are still the foundation for anyone who calls himself a Christian. We have peace and grace from God. We're loved by Jesus. We're freed from sin because of Jesus' blood. We've been made into a new people now so that we can serve the living God. What, what drives your identity? What, what, what shapes the way that you think about yourself? Is it your work and what you do for a living? Is it your family and the relationships you have? Is it the things that you achieve in life, your successes? or perhaps the things that you fail at? What is it that shapes how you think about yourself? I reckon if I was one of these Christians back then, I'd be shaped by this, that, that I feel like I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted. But, but John here is, is helping us 
reset the way that we think about ourselves, right? Our identity isn't grounded in what other people say about us. Our identity isn't grounded in the the situation we find ourselves in in life. No, no, no. Our identity is firstly found in what God says about us. And what does he say? He says that he's given us grace and peace and love. He says that we have been freed from sin by the blood of Jesus. He says we now have a mission in life to serve our God. That's what really counts for us, friends, isn't it? That's what really shapes who we are. Let that keep being the way. Let that keep being the stuff that drives the way you think about yourself. Because it's what God has said about you. But just back in the passage now. We've got John. He's been exiled off to to Patmos, this little island, and he has a vision. And it's, well, there's no other way to put this, is it? It's just weird. Like when Ada was reading it before, did you think that's not, that's not, that's not normal? Uh, when I lived in Sydney, I had a friend there. Uh, I met him at, at a university. He was a uni student at the time. And uh, while he was a uni student, he was experimenting with drugs. And um, one of the drugs he was experimenting with was acid. And he would describe the kind of things he saw when he was on these drugs. And they were weird. Is that what's going on with John here? Maybe he's just out there on this island. He's stumbled across. Maybe he's got some magic mushrooms and he's eaten those. And he's, or maybe he's found some like peyote, cactus kind of stuff and he's tripping out on. I don't know. But I tried drawing what, what um, John saw and it's weird. Take a look at this. Uh, John has a weird vision. There it is. Take a look at what I draw. Firstly, there's um, seven lampstands. I didn't draw those. I just got a bit of clip art for those. Um, there's seven lampstands. And then there's a man in verse 13 standing amongst these lampstands. There he is. Happy man. Uh, Verse 13, he has a robe reaching down to his feet and a golden sash. Verse 14, his his hair was white like wool. Uh, Verse 14 again, his eyes were like fire. Verse 15, his, his feet were like glowing bronze. Verse 15 also said that his voice sounded like rushing water. How do you draw that? Well... This is the best I could do. Rushing. Um, verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Also, verse 16, he had a, a sword coming out of his mouth. That looks pretty dodgy, doesn't it? Uh, verse 16 as well, his face was like the shining sun. Now, look at that for a moment. Can you tell me that that is not weird? It is. It is weird. And, and you know, other people who are better drawers than me have tried to draw this as well. And it always looks weird. You think, what's going on here? Yeah, if you, if you, if you kind of have got a good ear, you might have remembered verse 18. If you look down at verse 18, you'll see that this person is the person who he died and rose again. Now, who in the Bible is the person who died and rose again? It's Jesus. Well done. Yes, tick mark. Well done. You pass. Um, uh, so this is all about Jesus. And so you think, well, what's going on? Why are these strange? Why a sword? Why woolly hair? I talked before about keys to understanding Revelation. And I said, you know, I said the big one is it's all about the gospel message, all about Jesus and the victory he's won. That's key number one. Here's the second key to understanding Revelation. When there's a strange picture or when there's a description that doesn't make sense, 
all you want to do is look for a reference back to the Old Testament. So many of the images that are in Revelation are actually references back in the, to the Old Testament. And actually, would you believe that's exactly what's going on here in Revelation chapter 1? So in the Old Testament, who is it that wears a golden sash, a golden belt? In Daniel chapter 10, it's God. Or who in the Old Testament has hair that's white like wool? In Daniel chapter 7, it's God. Who in the Old Testament has eyes like fire and feet like uh, eyes like fire and, and, and feet like bronze? In chapter 10 of Daniel, again, it is God. Who in the Old Testament has a voice that sounds like rushing water? In Ezekiel 43, it's God. You're beginning to see then what this vision is about here. Here is Jesus, and make no mistake who he is. He's God. Right at the start of Revelation, we meet Jesus, and he is the all-powerful Lord. In fact, if we had ears here, we would, have, we would have got hints of this already. Back in verse 5, Jesus was called the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who's in charge of this earth? Not the kings. Jesus rules over them. Or again, later on down in something like verse 18, uh, Jesus is the one who has power over death. This is incredible power. Jesus is the author again and again. This vision, this whole chapter keeps showing us Jesus is the all-powerful Lord. So again, imagine you're someone who's part of those seven ancient churches and you hear this. What are you thinking? These are people who are suffering at the hands of those who seem to be in charge, those who seem to have power. But Revelation, it, it, it kind of gives us a peek behind the curtain and we see who really has power and it's Jesus. Can you imagine for those early Christians the relief that they would feel over this? They haven't made a bad decision after all. They haven't got things backwards in the wrong way around. And even if they're suffering now, this assures them it won't always be like this. Because who's in control? Who's on the throne? That's not the Roman emperor. It's not anyone else who would give them trouble. It's Jesus. So this has to give them then confidence. This brings them confidence. Confidence to keep following Jesus. Confidence that if they tell others about Jesus, that's a good thing to do. Confidence not to conform and just be like everyone else around them. Confidence not to compromise on what they believe, even if it might make things easier in the next little while. This gives them confidence to stay true to their Lord through thick and through thin because he is the all-powerful Lord. And as we read, as we today read this all these years later, we can have that same confidence too, right? Jesus hasn't changed. He is still the all-powerful Lord that he was 2,000 years ago. He's still the one in control, even when things don't seem to go well in our lives. So, friends, I want to say to you, I want to say to us, me too, be wholehearted in the way that you follow Jesus. When you feel 
pressure to conform and be like everyone else, as if there isn't everyone else and they're all the same. When you feel that pressure, when you feel like it's just going to be easier to compromise a little, just a little bit on your allegiance to Jesus, even if it's going to make things easier and avoid a whole lot of pain, friends, be confident to, to keep following Jesus and keep following him with everything you've got. Confident. There's one more detail though I just want to pick up on. We've seen this big vision of Jesus. He's the all-powerful Lord, right? But where is Jesus here? When John sees Jesus in this vision, where is Jesus? Well, verses 12 and 13 tell us. He's standing amongst seven lampstands. Okay. That doesn't really help us, does it? What does that mean? It's not until we get right at the end, the very last verse of this chapter, verse 20, that we see what it's all about. Have a look at verse 20 with me. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Where is Jesus? Here are these seven churches suffering. They're in trouble, persecuted because they follow Jesus. So what's Jesus done with them? Why is this happening? Where's the Lord that they serve? Oh, friends, he is right there amongst them. He is standing side by side with them. You see politicians do things like this, don't you? You know, um, Whenever there's a disaster, you get the floods, the fire, or the, the drought, or the cyclone, where's the politician? They come right there and stand amongst the people. And that's kind of right. You know, they should be there because they need to see what's happening and to know what to do. But, but don't think about Jesus in Revelation like a politician. I reckon it's more like being a kid, right? You remember when you're a kid and, and, and you're sick? You're vomiting and all that gross stuff. Well, what's the one thing you want when you're a kid who's sick? You want to not be sick anymore, isn't it? Yeah, of course. But apart from that, right, what's the one thing you want? It's You want your mum to be there. Or you want your dad to be with you. Or someone who, who, who you know loves you. You want them to be with you. Now, they can't make you better. They can't take the sickness away. But them being there, that's the important thing. Because it brings you comfort. But they're with you, even when things are at their worst for you. Even when you're hurting. That's more like what's going on here in Revelation. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord who stands with his people, even as they suffer, he stands with them. He will not leave them. He doesn't have something better to go off and do. He's right there with his people. So imagine again what this means for the people in those seven suffering churches. Their Lord has not gone missing in action. He hasn't left them. He hasn't abandoned them. He's right there with them. Wouldn't this be a comfort to them? Even if it mean, even if it seems like so many people in their world stand against them, even though things aren't easy, Jesus is by their side. Surely this brings them comfort. And friends, let this be a comfort to you too. Jesus is still the same Lord who stands with his people. So at the worst of your times, friends, 
The Lord Jesus has not abandoned you. He is right there with you. He is the Lord who stands with his people, no matter what we go through. Be comforted, dear friend. So let me wrap up. Let me go back to the phone call we talked about at the start, the question that the woman on the phone had. If Christianity comes under attack, what, what do we do? Now, today in Australia, we're not facing the same kind of pressures as the people back then did in those seven ancient churches. Now, there are places in the world where certainly Christians are facing these kind of things, but, but not in Australia today. What we feel, I think, is often something more subtle. Uh, pressure, maybe just not to speak up. Keep your faith to yourself. Uh, times when you, you feel like your views are just not welcome, and actually if you shared them, it would mean becoming a social outcast. We, we tend to face things that are just a little more subtle like that. I think there probably will be a time, I don't know how far away, but probably a time in this country where Christian belief and Christian living will, will be not acceptable anymore. I'm no prophet about these things. I could be wrong. But I suspect the first thing we'll see in this way is, is that we're not allowed to evangelize anymore. The question, though, is, is it not, not kind of planning out how that will come, but, but the question is, what do we do? You know, if we feel these subtle things coming against us are an attack, or, 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 or even if we live long enough and we see Christianity become less acceptable in Australia, what is it that we do? If Christianity or when Christianity comes under attack, what do we do about it? Can I firstly say some things I don't think we should do? Firstly, I think don't get involved in the culture wars. Don't get involved in the culture. That doesn't win anyone to Christ. Secondly, don't isolate yourselves from society. As you put up big walls and have nothing to do with the people out there and we'll just keep our holy huddle in here. No, 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 that's not what Jesus has sent us to do. Don't spend your time wishing we were just back in the past because the past had its own problems. And here's the big thing, friends. Don't panic. Don't panic. This is nothing new for Jesus. Instead, what do we do? We need to hear what Revelation 1 says. Jesus today is still the all-powerful Lord, so be confident about your faith. What did Revelation 1 also say? Jesus is the Lord who stands with his suffering people, so be comforted, friends, when it's hard. Your Lord is with you in it. And after that, just keep on living wholeheartedly for Jesus. Keep on seeking to engage with other people that you know. Do it respectfully. Be open about your faith. Don't, don't try and hide it. Keep true to what you believe. Don't compromise. Even if compromise might help you just get a little bit further ahead in this life. Now, if we live like this, if we keep wholeheartedly following Jesus, there might be a cost to us in the here and now. But it's okay, isn't it? Because we know who really is in control. And we know that Jesus is the Lord who will stand with us no matter what. So I'm going to pray for us now that we would, we would follow him wholeheartedly. Father, we thank you for this vision of Jesus we see in the Bible. We thank you for who Jesus is, the Lord, the all-powerful Lord, who stands with his people through thick and through thin. 
So Father, please help us have confidence to follow Jesus. Please help us be comforted when it's hard. Please help us live wholehearted lives to follow the Lord. Come what may. We need your help in this, Father, because on our own we won't. We'll stumble and we'll fall. We'll compromise and give up. But you, Lord, give us strength to keep going. And so we pray and ask for that to be working in us now and always. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.